things that he's teaching us into this world that, that does not know you, that wants to judge us, wants, wants to be judged according to what you have, Lord, I pray that we would use that in Jesus' name. Amen. Just kidding. Uh, <clears throat> well, you guys are in luck, because today I'm going to talk about an experience that we all have, because today I want to talk a little bit about annoying people. You may not have met them, but I have. Uh, you know, it doesn't matter really what kind of walk of life we run into, like we, we always experience someone that is just incredibly annoying. For me, uh, it was one of the most annoying things that uh, stood out to me when I was in high school. It was this guy named Charlie Cowell. And um, Charlie was, he was like the singularity of all things annoying when I was in high school. One, he smelled bad. It was, it just smelled like he maybe never discovered a shower. I don't know. But he just always smelled bad. And you might be thinking, Adam, why are you saying such terrible things about this kid that we don't even know? It, it's because I'm a terrible person. But um, I want to tell you the second thing that makes it a little bit easier to judge him a little bit. It, because he was mean. He was one of the meanest kids in my high school. Like, he would call me the worst names, and he would call other people the worst names. And, like, people would say hi to him, and he would respond with things that I can't say in church. Like, he was just a really mean person. And so, it was, like, that was annoying. And then finally, like, he uh, always wore, like, he was on the completely opposite end of the spectrum for me. Because when I met him, I was in khakis and sweater vest land, which no one else was in at the time. So I guess I was probably annoying. But um, I was in khakis and sweater vest land, and he, like, always wore Jinko jeans. And these were, it's a brand, and these were the kind of jeans that were, like, this big around at the bottom. And it looks like a dress, kind of, like a pencil, whatever you call it, where it fans out at the bottom. And it was just, like, annoying. It's like, who are you? What are you doing? So I was convicted by God to be friends with this kid because he always sat alone. No one else liked him because he was so annoying. And uh, so I was convicted, and I was like, okay, God, I'm going to do that thing. And so I started, like, sitting with him during lunch. And there I discovered that he smelled worse than I ever thought he did. And it was so hard to eat lunch because he was just like, ugh. And he was so much meaner than I ever thought he was before because now I have a conversation with him and I'm giving him fodder to turn against me and, and to say mean, terrible things back to me. And his fashion was still terrible. But then I discovered one more thing that just drove me insane. So uh, there's this phenomenon, I hope I don't offend anybody here, called uh, fingerboards. And the reason I do this is because instead of skateboards where you use your feet, they're miniature skateboards that you run all over the place with your fingers. 
And, and he was like really, really into this, and I'm really hoping that nobody else in this room is into this because I thought it was so stupid. Because what he would do is he'd take these little skateboard and he'd run it all over the place and over your books and on your arm, and he was just like, dude, leave me alone. Now, again, you guys are probably thinking, Adam, you are a terrible person. Like, why are you bashing this poor 15-year-old awkward kid? Well, the reason I bring him up is because I'm pretty sure, if we all uh, just got really honest with ourselves, that we all have a Charlie Cowell in our life. We all have people that are just so completely annoying that every time you see them, it just, like, you see red. Like, maybe for you, it's like a family member that a long time ago memorized the proper arrangement of all your buttons to push to send you to the moon in, like, three seconds flat. It's like, boop, 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 now you're crazy. Have fun. (laughs) You know? We all kind of have family like that, don't we? We all have people that just drive us crazy. Or maybe for you, it's like not family, but you you run into people at the grocery store. I'm getting angry thinking about it. Have you ever heard of an express lane? Yeah, some of us have heard of an express lane. What does it usually say in big, bold letters right under the word express lane? Ten items or less, or sometimes terribly twelve items or less. It always have a, has a very specific number. And the thing about numbers is that's what it is. Ten is not eleven. Ten is ten. And every time I go to the grocery store, there seems to be this cosmic galactic principle that whoever is in front of me has no comprehension of the Arabic numeral system and knows how those work. Because they do not read that. It says ten items or less, and they think, well, I have thirty yogurts. So that's one. (laughs) I've got 14 cans of cat food, so there's two. And then I've got this random thing I found on aisle 14. I don't even know what it is, and good luck price checking it. But they're going to try for 10 minutes. And the whole time, inside, I'm just thinking, this person is stupid. And that's being really nice. And I'm probably censoring myself a little bit here. But you've all been in those moments where it's just like, what the heck is going on here? Or, okay, I was driving here this morning. And uh, how many of you guys know that it's really good to be a law-abiding citizen within the speed limits of Lingle, Wyoming? Because we have an excellent police officer here that does an excellent job of policing the speed limit. And so every time I go from 65 to 30, and I hit 30, and I slow down, and I'm like, Endra, we're going to be friends today. It's going to be fine. We don't even have to talk. We'll be friends. And so today I did that. And this motorcycle was like riding my bumper the whole time. And so finally we got like to the bank or something. And I'm just driving 30, trying to be a law-abiding citizen. And they pull over and then they go and zoom up the hill. And in my heart and in my mind, this good, righteous person in front of you thought, where's Indra? Get her. Get him. Get him. Because, I mean, I don't know. We've, We've all thought that. Like people can be annoying wherever we are. And, and, and so for you, maybe it's like people you know, or maybe it's people you don't know, or maybe it's not annoying people that push your buttons, but maybe you've experienced like actual terrible people. Has anyone ever met a terrible person? Yeah, some of them are raising their hands and looking right at me. Like, <laughs> that's you. Um, I've, I, I've actually met people that I have put into the terrible person bucket. I'm going to just tell you a quick story about one of those. Uh, okay, so when I was growing up, one of my best friends, the, the, the family that took me in after my family said no thanks, um, the family that took me in, 
the daughter of that family, when she was 19, 20 years old, uh, was diagnosed with brain cancer. Uh, she had a tumor in her brain, and she was given six months to live. And miraculously, um, she kept living, and she's actually alive today, which is an incredible story. But um, she met this guy that no one really liked because he was kind of mean and a jerk and all that stuff. And she met this guy, and she married him. And then they ran off together. And by the time they came back, they had two kids. So they hated each other. Like, it was a terrible, terrible thing. And it got worse because they decided that they, they weren't going to work on anything. They were just going to quit and get a divorce. So he moved to Alabama. She stayed in Kansas. And so they had this whole custody thing. And if any of you have ever had the opportunity to be a part of a custody battle, no thanks. Don't do that. Uh, but they were kind of doing this back and forth thing. And so there was one time when he was supposed to send the kids and he didn't. It was his court reported in time to send the kids and he didn't. And so she's like getting kind of miffed at him. She's kind of upset. And so she sends him this message saying, hey, where are my kids? Why aren't you sending the kids? You're supposed to send my kids right now. And literally, I, I read this message. He says, I am waiting for you to die. This human being, this person made in God's image, ostensibly, says this to my dear friend who's dying of brain cancer, who is trying to see her kids like over the holidays, maybe for the last time of her life. And he says, I'm waiting for you to die. And we all have people like that too. We all have people that we can point at and say, you are actually a terrible person. And we may be justified in that, we may be not justified in that, but we all kind of have that category, don't we? People we've run into, into in our lives that are just... They're just terrible people. Just put them in that category. They're just terrible people. And what we're doing in that point is we are judging. And I, I want to talk to you today about some, some good news because I, this is something I struggle with. If you can't tell by the language I've been using this morning, this is something I struggle with, not like yesterday and like, oh, I prayed to God and then oh, it's all better. Like, I am struggling with this today. But I think that truth helps us. And I think that truth is found in God's Word. So that's what we're going to look at. Uh, we've been in the Sermon on the Mount. We've been in chapter 6 for a while. Today, we're starting a new chapter. We're looking at chapter 7, verses 1 through 12. So if you guys could open to Matthew chapter 7, that would be great. Um, and then also, I would like two volunteers. You do not have to say anything. You just have to sit. Can I get two volunteers to sit? Abby and Kayla, come on up. Everybody give them a round of applause, Abby and Kayla. They are wonderful people. Yep. Yep. Yep, yep, yep. Okay, come on up. Pick a seat and sit. <clears throat> it will all make sense soon. These are wonderful people. They work up at camp. I like them. Chapter 7, verse 1. Jesus is talking about how to live your life. And if you remember way back when, when I first started talking about the Sermon on the Mount, I pointed out, I think appropriately, that, that Jesus says there is no way that you can do this on your own, and it's by me that you can fulfill the law. And so I want you to keep that in the back of your mind as we're talking about this, because no one is perfect. No one can nail this, okay? Jesus is perfect. If you haven't lashed yourself to his life, to the life that he promises us, today's advice will be useless for you. But it might be helpful, I guess. I don't know. We'll see. He starts off by saying, judge not, that you be not judged. How many of you have ever, have ever heard or been told that Christians should never judge people? Some of us. Yeah, it's pretty harsh stuff. 
So people are like, well, you're a Christian. You shouldn't judge people. And so they expect that since there are verses like this, where if you just read the one verse, it says in pretty clear language, judge not that you would not be judged. Like, we're just not supposed to judge. So we're just supposed to be an entire community of people that just kind of like rolls over when the evil of the world stands up. We're just these milquetoast people that will just crumble and, and fall uh, as soon as any sort of evil person approaches, and we, don't, we will never call it out. And I want to tell you that that is not what Jesus is saying today. And hopefully, as we go on, you'll see a little bit more about what Jesus is particularly saying. So, he's explaining it now. He says, For, with the judgment you pronounce, you yourself will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. So judgment, I think, in my mind, when I think of judgment, I think of a situation like this, where there are two people involved in any sort of judging situation. There is the person who is low and the person who is high up. Who do you think is judging right now? Kayla. Kayla is judging because how does Kayla have to look at Abby right now? Just look down at her. She's on what you'd call a high horse, maybe a high chair, I don't know. But he says that when you judge someone, you are instantly inviting the concept that whatever, whatever you look at them with judgment for, whatever condemnation you look at them with, whatever, whatever guilt, whatever thing you throw at them, you instantly put yourself in that person's seat. So if you guys could switch. Because Jesus points out, in reality, the bad person isn't nearly as bad as, they, as you thought they were. And you, the good person, is not nearly as good as you thought you were. Let's read. He says, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? Or how can you say to your brother, Here, let me take the speck out of your eye where there is a log in your own eye, you hypocrite. Uh, you, can you guys give them a round of applause for representing judgments for us? Good job. You guys can have your seats. Good job. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so to exemplify this, I, I found this story on um, a podcast called Planet Money. And it's a great podcast. And I would like to do an experiment with you guys. Because in my recollection, we have never played a part of a radio show in church before. But I think this will be really beneficial for you. It's a story about a man and his brother. So, Roy, could you play that for us? Rose is an instructive case because, really, if there is ever a person who seems like he would never commit fraud, it would be Toby Gross. Yeah, I mean, especially when you look at what happened to Toby when he was a young man. He had this very formative experience around 20 years old. He says he was home in Cincinnati for a visit with his parents. I was walking through, I can picture this, I'm walking through our dining room, and I look out in the backyard. It was a beautiful day. And I look out, and I see my dad doubled over, and he's shaking, and I think he's having a heart attack. So I run out, and he's sobbing, he's sobbing uncontrollably. Toby remembers running out and grabbing his father, begging his father to explain, you know, what's happening. So I'm grabbing onto him. You know, what's wrong? What do you need? How can I help you? And he just, like, thrust this paper. I didn't even know he had it. He just pushes it over. And it's the Cincinnati Inquirer, and I open it up, and you know, there's my brother on the front page. Toby's brother was almost 20 years older than Toby, and he worked at a local bank. 
He'd been successful, had been. It was a story about you know, bank fraud. I don't remember the exact headline, but you know, our last name and fraud was in there, and that's all I needed to know. To give you a little more background, Toby says that he always had a really difficult relationship with his brother. You know, at least in Toby's way of thinking, his brother was a bad character. He was a selfish and manipulative guy. So it was against that emotional backdrop that what happens next occurs. There in the backyard, Toby's father turns to him. He said, promise me that you will never, ever get in any trouble like this. And I did. I swore to him that I wouldn't. So, like, right there on the grass, he yeah. turns to you and he says, promise me that you will never become this person. Yes. Yeah, we stood right there. Now, again, we should say for Toby, this was an easy promise to make. Toby, Toby believed, was a fundamentally good person. He grew up on a farm, a very religious family. He could never get involved in something like fraud. It wasn't even a question. Which is why the addendum to this story is so very remarkable. You see, 22 years after this promise to his father, Toby Groves found himself standing in front of the exact same judge who had sentenced his brother, being sentenced himself for the exact same crime, fraud. And not just any fraud, a massive bank fraud involving millions of dollars that drove several companies out of business. So they go on to explain the situation, and um, Toby, the, the good guy, says, my only solace was that my father did not live to see me break his promise, to break my promise. But it's a situation where um, someone thought, there is no way that I'll ever run into this problem, and so he totally judged his brother. And then the thing that stands out to me is he stood in front of the exact same judge for the exact same crime, but in a greater magnitude. And I think that's kind of what Jesus is pointing out to us um, as we look at Matthew chapter 7. Because he says, How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a log in your own eye? To this person, he says, you hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So there's this juxtaposition that Jesus says. He, in a way, he says, do not judge, in a sense of do not condemn. He says that if you think that your brother is bad, then uh, you yourself are worse. Potentially. Potentially. He takes this judgment situation where someone is looking down on someone else, and he turns it on its head. And he says that instead, we need to look at it as an opportunity to look inward to ourselves. Uh, how many of you guys have ever ridden or flown a plane, I guess? Ridden, more specifically, like a commercial jetliner? Yeah, so a couple people, yeah. I hate flying for a lot of reasons, and one of them is the mind-numbingly boring safety talk that they always insist that you listen to. So like, take off your headphones, look at us, because we're going to tell you what happens when the plane crashes, I, to which I always add, we die. I mean, it's not really... <laughs> that's my only job when the plane crashes, is just to burn. But um, that's a morbid thought. I shouldn't have said that. Just cut that from the recording. It'll be fine. Um, but they do this thing where they're, like, they're giving you motions and directions, and they do coordinated things that I'm typically really bad at. But at the end of it, 
they, they say this thing, and they always say it. And it's so predictable, but it's so true. They say, before you dispense oxygen to your neighbor, make sure you take care of yourself. And they always have like this situation where it's like a, a lady and a child. And so they're like showing, even mothers, when the oxygen masks are dropping, things are, you're going to need that. And so always put on your, your mask before you put on someone else's mask. Now, why do they do that? Why do they say that? You can't help anybody when you're dead unless, you're a, unless your friends are cannibals. Then you're useful. So, yep. Cam, he made me promise that I would include that joke in this. And so there you go. There you have it. But you can't help somebody when you yourself are dead. You cannot help somebody when you yourself have succumbed to whatever it is in this sort of situation. So um, it's this moment when you see someone going off the rails, you have a choice to look inward and say, am I going off the rails? The splinter should remind you of your log, if you have a log, and you need to deal with that thing. Now, the really, really cool thing, I think, about the way that God has wired us is that me, myself, I have become not an expert, but well-versed in several particular types of sin, both how to commit them and how to get out of them, because that's the struggle that I've had in my life. Those are the situations that came up in my life. The most beautiful thing in this room is that we all represent expertise in our own areas of sin. We all represent expertise in our own little corner of the sin world where we have been rescued from. There are things that you have found deliverance from that I have not found deliverance from because I didn't fall into and vice versa. It's like this beautiful kaleidoscope of expertise. We don't need to go to the internet to find experts. We've got them here. And we have this opportunity to help each other. So let's say, for instance, that I have a car. And I can either call an automotive mechanic, just a general, you know, Jiffy Lube type guy, or for the same price, which will never happen, I can call the dealership and use their mechanics that made these vehicles. If money was no object, I would always go with them because they're the ones that are the experts on my particular car. For instance, when I was uh, in high school, um, no, this was in college, uh, I called home to my dad and um, I was 600 miles away and I was driving a 99 Oldsmobile Alero, which is a terrible, terrible car. Uh, having driven one for many years, if you drive one, I feel your pain. Um, and it was doing this really weird thing that I'd never heard of. And I'm kind of savvy with, with cars, not really, but kind of. And so I, uh, I called up my dad. And I tell him about eight words. And he interrupts me. And he says, and it's probably doing this too, isn't it? I said, yeah, it is. That's weird. And it's probably doing this too. Uh-huh, it is. And then like, it starts getting into spooky land because he's telling me really, really specific things about my engine that's in front of me that I didn't know to articulate. I didn't know they were all part of the same problem. But because he had worked on that particular engine because it was a terrible engine many, many times, he was well-versed in all the ways that it could be dysfunctional. 
And so, like, it just got uncanny. By the end of the conversation, I was almost asking him for lottery numbers because he was just like this prophet telling me about my car. But we all know what expertise feels like. And when we go through something and we come out of something, we have a log and we can pull it out, we suddenly have so much better equipment to help someone going through a similar thing. My friend John Barry pointed out that it's not like the difference was between a log and a rock. He didn't say a log and a pebble. He used two things of the same kind, just different magnitude. It's apples to apples. When I deal with a huge thing in this particular area, and someone's got something else in their eye, it helps me to be better equipped to help them. And that's what Jesus does. This crazy thing where he takes judgment, which is terrible, and he says, don't do it because you're a terrible judge. And he turns judgment and he just twists it a little bit. And he makes it this very therapeutic thing. He says, um, first, take the log out of your own eye and then you will see clearly to take out the speck out of your brother's eye. We can help each other. Now, this next verse, I think, is interesting. It's a little bit enigmatic, and I want you guys to go with me here for a second because um, commentators are all over the place on this one. Most don't know what to do with it, but I think it has everything to do with what we're talking about. So he's, he's talking about judgment, 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 and then he gets to verse 6, and he says, Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. I think what he's talking about is when you go to someone, you know, having, doing it the right way, having taken the log out of your own eye and going to someone that's got a speck and saying, hey, I think you've got this speck and I think I know some tools that can help you get that out of your eye. That person either rejects that or has no interest in, in following that, no interest in getting it out of their own eye. They have no interest in like, pursuing that. They devalue the incredible gift that you're trying to give them in that moment. He says, stop right there. Just put the brakes on, guys. Because it becomes suddenly very dangerous. Because uh, what you're doing is, you're taking an area where you're really, really well-versed in how to sin. And through the Holy Spirit and through God's work, you have taken that log out of your eye and you've overcome that thing that other people could judge you for and you've taken that out and you've dealt with it. And you've, 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 you're good. And then you're interacting with somebody that's struggling with the same thing. In Galatians, Paul actually cautions people when they're helping other people out of things. It's in Galatians 5, excuse me. He says, when you're pulling someone out of this sort of thing, be careful that you do not fall into it yourself. I think this, this, it is so remarkable to me how, like, Scripture is, like, true, but Scripture is actually real. Because I, I've seen addiction situations where someone sponsors someone else, and through that relationship, they both use again. Because the, the sponsor was not in the right place. The sponsor wasn't, like, they weren't solid, and the person that they were helping wasn't committed to the process. And I think that's the situation that Jesus is talking about here, where he says... You have the opportunity to help someone. And that is a very, very valuable gift. But if they're not going to see that as a valuable gift, if they're not part of the process, if they're not part of trying to get out of that thing, then you need to just kind of distance yourself from that. Because God apparently still needs to do some work with them. 
So an interesting thing about um, the Sermon on the Mount is sometimes it feels like Jesus is just kind of like jumping all over the place. And I want you guys to bear with me that I don't think he's doing that. And I think that what he's doing is he's explaining uh, worldview and how how we see each other affects how we see God. And to make my point, what I'd like to do is I'd like to actually turn to a different gospel. And I'd like to look at uh, Luke chapter 15. This is bar none my favorite story in Scripture. Moses is cool. Noah's all right, but this is it. This is the bee's knees, as some would say. So we are going to go to chapter 15, verse 11. And Jesus is going to tell us a story about someone who is in the middle of judging someone else. Who is in the middle of condemning someone else. Who is in the middle of sitting on their high chair, looking down at someone in a low chair, and saying, how dare they? And we're going to find they switch. And it's a wonderful story. And we're going to find out why they switch. And maybe why we sit in this high chair sometimes. Here we go. Verse 11 says, And he said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And so his father divided property between them. So uh, probably uh, the situation here is not 50-50. It's actually probably like 60-30 or 60-40. I can't do fractions uh, or percentages. Um, it's, it's probably less than that because he's the younger son. And so the older son would typically get a greater inheritance. That's just true. But for today's sake, we're just going to say 50-50. So he splits his fortune in half, gives half of his fortune to, his, to the younger brother, which is already not cool. Because already the, the younger son is looking at his father and he's seeing dollar signs. And he's like, when he dies, I get half of his stuff. I wonder if I can skip the dying part and just get half his stuff. So he does that, and the father does it. And we'll find out more of the father's heart as the story goes on. But So he divided it and he shared the property between them. And it said, not many days later, quickly after, the younger son gathered all that he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. Okay, so I want you guys to understand this. When we hear this story in other situations, we get really excited about the ending, but we skip over the middle, where we find out that this younger son is actually a terrible person. Okay, this younger son, who I always identify with, is literally a terrible person. He, one, he devalues his father and takes all the inheritance. And then he runs off, doesn't even, you know, share relationship with his father anymore. He says, you might as well be dead to me. He goes off to a far country, and then he squanders it quickly. Like, this is the equivalent, I think, of, like, taking half of my inheritance, going to Vegas, putting it all on black, and letting it ride, and then, you know, have it come up red. Whoops, I guess, uh, I hope the buffet's free, you know? It's that kind of a situation that he's in. And it says, not many days later, he went out and he, he, he squandered it, uh, his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. Now, that's interesting because Jews view pigs to be unclean animals, and to be in contact with them makes you unclean. And Jesus is a Jew. His audience are Jews. He's pointing out that this person is not only a terrible person, he's also a disgusting person. 
He's also a shameful person. And it gets worse. Because not only does he feed pigs, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. Like if Jesus was telling this story to second graders, this is the point in the story where they all go, Ew! You know, like second graders do. And so we know now that this young son, the one who takes all of his father's inheritance and runs away and spends it all and then works with pigs and wants to eat pig food, he came to himself and he made a plan. He said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I am perishing here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, and he makes up this little speech. I don't know if you've ever given yourself a pep talk in the mirror, but I I imagine this is probably what it is. He's looking at himself in the mirror, and he's like, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. He came to his senses. He returned to his father, and he says, I don't even have to be a son anymore. I'll just be a servant. I know I already blew my inheritance. I have no inheritance left. I'll just be a servant. I'll take a wage. Um, And he arose and came to his father. This is verse 20. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. That's the father's heart towards his son, the terrible person. That's the father's heart to his son, the disgusting person. You know, the guy that's going to sit on the judgment throne at the end of days? That's God the Father. And here he runs with love and compassion. And so, interestingly, this guy is going with his plan, the one he rehearsed in front of the mirror. He says, And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, he doesn't even get to finish the little speech that he had prepared. Like he's probably like halfway through reading the napkin that he wrote it on. And the father interrupts him and turns to a servant and says, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and put shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead and is alive again he was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate that is truly good news guys because we realize that we are that son we realize that in this situation we are sitting in that chair We are the ones to be looked down on. We are the ones that don't deserve anything. When we understand how low we are and how big God is, His grace becomes a beautiful, beautiful thing. When we realize that He would uh, kill His best calf for us, serve us steak, not hamburger, it changes the way we see the world. But here's the other perspective. Because we often don't read this part of the story because it's like the best part of the story already. Like it's the exciting part, so now let's just... Go and do something else. But if we read on, we find another character that sometimes we represent. Sometimes we live this out. And it says, Now his older son was in the field. And as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing. And he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has received him back safe and sound. 
If you are the older son, you just heard the servant tell you that your father had killed a calf that would be yours to celebrate your brother who was stupid and ran off and blew all his money. Because, see, the younger brother realizes that his father only has so much inheritance. He only has some for his brother, and he only has some for him. And so the brother has already spent all his, so what's left? All of his. The older brother is left spending his own inheritance to celebrate this idiot who blew all his. That's probably his perspective. And to be honest, he wouldn't be wrong in that situation. He just has a wrong perspective. There's this, um, there's this term in economics called zero-sum economics. And the idea is that when uh, in ancient agrarian economies like this one, and even today, it's kind of our mindset, they assume that out there is a certain amount of things. And if some people have more things, then that definitely means that other people have less things. So let's say, for instance, that I have a cake, and I'm going to split it with Zach and Brittany. So what I do is I eat half the cake, and I give the majority of the cake to Zach, Brittany's like, I only get one piece. Because that's all that's left. And that's zero-sum theory. The idea that there is only so much stuff out there to share. And if someone gets a lot of it, then that means the rest of us get none of it. And that's what the older brother is thinking. That's where the, bro- the older brother is. He's in this like really finite, limited sort of way. He doesn't understand that his father may gain more wealth. That in in his later years, maybe, since he's still living, his father may double his fortune and give his brother a double portion. He doesn't assume that. He's just assuming that he's stingy or that um, his younger brother is getting all the stuff. He himself is stingy. And so um, the servant explains this to him and it says, but he was angry and he refused to go in. So his father came out and entreated him. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I have never disobeyed your commandment. Yet you never even gave me a goat that I might celebrate with my friends. Forget a fatted calf. You never even gave me like a little gimpy goat. The the older brother is righteous and indignant at this point. He's self-righteous and indignant because he's saying, All these years I have served you where he left. All these years, I've been good. I've worked hard. And now you're going to spend it all on him? His perspective is so incredibly small. At this point, he's thinking, there's no cake left for me. You're spending all my cake on that idiot over there. He's judging. And I think that's where we find ourselves. Often. And he says, but when this son of yours came who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And I think the father's response is the key to understanding the second half of chapter 7, the second half of our passage today. Because his father says, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this brother of yours was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. There's more to this than you think. There's more at stake than stupid cows. 
That's what his father says. His father brings in a new perspective. And I think oftentimes our view of God changes our view of people. First uh, John points out that um, we cannot say that we love God and hate our neighbor because anyone who hates their neighbor cannot possibly love God. They are linked. Our view of God is linked to our view of our neighbors. So let's go back to Matthew chapter 7 and look again. Because I think all of a sudden it's going to start to make sense. In verse 7, Jesus says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Do we believe that? Do we actually believe that God will give us good things? Note that it doesn't say uh, he gives us what we want. He gives us what we think would be really cool. He gives us what we need. All I have needed, thy hand hath provided. Great is thy faithfulness, Lord, unto me. Do we believe that when we sing it? Because to be honest with you, I often don't. I often doubt. And what it does is that doubt puts me into this really small world where there's only a little bit of cake left. And it's all been given away to all the wrong people. And if, I, if someone would just figure out how wrong they are, I would get more cake. But in reality, God gives us good and perfect gifts. Do we believe that? I mean, let's think about the gifts that God has given us to date. Life, that's good. And earth to live on, also good. He's given us uh, the, the things inside of us that make us special, like the idea of beauty. He made that up. Creativity, so that we can invent new things to make life better. Sometimes not better, but sometimes better. He put that in us. That was a gift. He didn't have to do that. He could have, all just, he could have made us all just like these automatons that just kind of like, yes, sir, and then just live our life and whatever. But he gave us choice. He gave us uh, creativity. He gave us intellect, rationality. The things that we use to think about things are a gift from God. The very idea that you are listening to me and I have thought through these words to say and I'm able to say them is a gift from God. And when we look at that and we can get a glimpse of the big, big world that God has put us in and the good world that God has asked us to be a part of, showing his son to, it makes it so much harder to level a judging finger at somebody and say, knock it off. Because we realize we're all saved by grace. We're all covered by love. Now, we should still go through that process that we talked about earlier because he actually wraps it up. And, I, and this is a very famous passage, but I want to make sure that we hear it. It says, So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. 
All of a sudden, judging is not something that I force upon you. Judging is something that you invite. Judging is something that I invite. Because if I'm walking around with a splinter in my eye, however small it is, it is uncomfortable. And if someone who is like an expert at splinter removal can come along and say, I know how to get that out, you will do me a favor. So as the worship band is going to come up and sing us a last song and we'll pass some plates and go about our day, go back into a normal week, I would like to ask you to join me. Join me in a very particular struggle that I have because my view of people is pretty judgy and my world is pretty small. But we now know the truth. And we now know that God is inviting us into a greater view of Him and a more charitable view towards others. The the language that I used in the little Connect card, there's a thing that says, I will choose to be more generous in my worldview. That we will look for the good in people and we will try to help them through their things instead of condemn them for their things. That we will have a generous worldview of God that He Himself is generous and loves us. I want you to join me as I honestly struggle with this and as I honestly try to take a few steps closer to Jesus. Would you please join me as we take just a few steps closer to Jesus? God, I just pray that you would help us. Lord, the weak leads us strong and um, we all qualify. God, you said that you would use the foolish things to confound the wise and um, thank you for that. So God, I pray that you would help us to understand your grace and understand Father's attitude towards us. God, help us to understand that there's a big world out there with a big God looking out over it. And that we are invited to be a part of making it a better place. So God, I pray that you would help us to take steps towards you. Lord, help us to be charitable and generous to those around us not condemning them for being annoying or for being terrible, but realizing that we ourselves are sometimes annoying and sometimes terrible. God, we love you so much and are grateful for your love. Help us to remember it in a half hour. Lord, when someone's pushing our buttons, help us to remember in a couple days. Lord, when we have a small view of you, Lord Jesus, help us to remember how big you are in Jesus' name. Amen. Love you, Stan, and have the